0: Mark Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision Tier Science, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming.
1: Today we're going to be covering a topic. It's really of interest to all medical professionals, and we'd like to welcome our visitors and viewers from uh, the United States and and around the world. Um, Today, we're gonna be diving deep and uh, getting into the immunology um, and pathophysiology of COVID-19 and and why so many people are getting sick, why uh, maybe children are not uh, getting as sick as adults, and how is our immune system uh, going haywire uh, with, with this disease, and I'm really excited to welcome uh, Dr. Randy Kron, who is a professor of pediatrics and rheumatology at UAB. So with that, Dr. Kron, uh please introduce yourself real quick, and then we'll, we'll get on to the rest of the show.
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks for uh, having me on. I'm a, a pediatric rheumatologist here at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Uh, I'm also a, a basic science and translational immunologist, uh, although as immunologists, we're pretty many of us myself included are pretty narrow focused because it's such a huge field in and of itself but i do have um a particular interest and expertise in cytokine storm syndromes which uh, are starting to obviously get a lot more attention with uh this current pandemic
1: absolutely and, and, you, and you you kind of wrote the book on cytokine storm syndrome correct
2: uh, I uh, co-edited uh, the first textbook basically solely devoted to cytokine storm syndromes with my colleague at the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Ed Behrens, <laughs> and we wrote a couple chapters in there, but we also got uh, people from all over the planet who are world experts in various areas of cytokine storm syndrome uh, to contribute. Just I, I was really impressed by the stuff that they put together. I, I was very happy with our Product. It was a lot of work, but I think it's worthwhile. And as you can tell, we just, it's incredibly timely for whatever reason. Absolutely.
1: Uh, With that, Blake, why don't you introduce our other uh, friends who are on the show today?
2: Yeah, uh, Randy, first of all, just want to
3: congratulate you. You are the first uh, non ophthalmologist physician to appear on Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This is a tremendous honor. Uh, you've uh, you've now. Uh, I, I hope you're you're appreciative of, of this of this uh, honor.
2: <laughs> we work as as pediatric rheumatologists. We work quite a bit with ophthalmologists because uh, our children with chronic arthritis develop uveitis, and so uh, we work very closely with you guys. Well, I
3: think you're going to like our, our, our teammates on the call. Um, we have uh, Dr. Laura Perriman from the Seattle area and Dr. Bill Trattler uh, from Miami. And, you know, Dr. Perriman is, is, is a well known uh, dry eye disease master, but a lot of that has to do with her unique understanding of molecular biology. She's been working in molecular biology labs even before medical school in Washington. And Dr. Bill Trattler is a, a cornea refractive surgeon. Uh, has written books actually in medical school uh, about microbiology and the sort. So we hope that that we have uh, got an expert panel uh, to kind of toss questions back and forth. We already have over 100 participants. Everyone, please, uh, if you have any questions, go ahead and and start writing, and we'll we'll try to do our best to get to them. But, you know, I think the first thing that I wanted to ask, you know, when Gary sent that article uh, just about cytokine storm, yeah, you know, I think I think that uh, the one I read is all about how vaccines are <clears throat> very important. But boy, those are a long way away. Wouldn't we do better by having a better understanding of supportive therapies, specifically for diseases like cytokine storm? If you can just kind of give us a general overview of that.
2: Sure, um, and and I'll I'll preface this by saying that um, the cytokine storm syndrome that we. Uh, are seen with this COVID-19 outbreak uh, appears to be different than almost any other one we've seen in the past, or maybe we just haven't looked closely enough, but there are features of it that certainly are very suggestive of a cytokine storm, but there are also features of it that are very different. But in general, a cytokine storm, uh, fortunately, doesn't happen to that many of us. Uh, We do believe there are probably genetic predispositions, and there may be for this viral outbreak as well. Uh, But most people wouldn't know that a priori um, as to why, for example, some people who get this virus or the influenza virus, which can also trigger a cytokine storm, you know, kind of have, you know, this virus can be asymptomatic apparently for a significant percentage or have a mild or bad case of the flu, but keeps you at home, for for example. But why maybe up to one in five people seem to require hospitalization and then a smaller subset even requires intensive care. Uh, But a cytokine storm uh, is something that um, can be triggered by a variety of things. Infections are certainly one of them. We also see this in settings of patients with certain types of blood cancers like leukemia and lymphomas, as well as autoimmune and what are called autoinflammatory disorders of the innate immune system uh, that are at higher risk of developing, for example, patients with lupus. We often see them develop this at onset if they're going to develop it. Nevertheless, what happens we think is that uh, whatever triggers it, uh, your immune system responds to that. Uh, let's say a virus. Uh, normally, if you catch a virus like the flu or a cold, your immune system, you know, goes gets ready and starts ramping itself up and starts attacking the pathogen to try to control it. And at some point, hopefully, it does if your immune system is intact. And then your immune system is actually hardwired to shut itself down. Otherwise we'd be like in a chronic state of inflammation or one giant lymph node, for example. Uh, But what's thought to occur in cytokine storms is at least in the ones that we can understand genetically, and there's a familial form of these diseases called, um, it's a mouthful, but HLH for short or hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. And we've learned a lot from those uh, genetic defects in the children that present with that in infancy. And uh, at least for a subset of patients, even with later onset cytokine storm, some of the same principles hold. And that is there are a type of white blood cell or lymphocyte uh, called natural killer cells and cytotoxic CD8 T lymphocytes, which actually kill the infected, what we call them antigen presenting cells because they're presenting a piece of the virus to the, to the T cell to activate it. Um, and they have a defect in uh, the ability to kill that infected cell and as part of that they spend longer engaged you know touching membrane to membrane uh, and that process that prolonged engagement normally you're when they're talking they're they're talking through these proteins called cytokines which are kind of like hormones of the immune system that signal other cells to do other things or to come to the site of inflammation Uh, But when their prolonged interaction is occurring, these cytokines get out of control. And that's what's at least thought to occur in a subset of patients who have cytokine storm syndromes and potentially what's happening here with COVID-19. And in the end, you know, the virus is very important. If you have a medicine that targets the virus, and in this case, we may or we may not, we just don't know yet. um, Sure, you need to treat the infection. That's very important. But probably more importantly, if there is a cytokine storm, that's likely causing a lot of the damage or multi-organ failure uh, or the acute respiratory distress syndrome in the case of this virus in particular, that may be leading to the morbidity and mortality uh, more than just the virus itself. So we need to treat that aspect of the patient as well. So, uh,
1: Randy, let me just ask it because maybe we should start just from the beginning. Uh, I was, you know, a lot of ophthalmologists are stuck at home. You know, we're not doing elective surgery. And so we're driving ourselves crazy uh, reading articles, you know, and that's sort of how I was trying to learn as much as I can. And, you know, it really struck me that there it seems to be worldwide um, children and younger younger people tend to be spared um, from this and older folks uh, tend to uh, have a much more severe disease process. And, and as I was going through that, I was like, well, there must be a difference in the immune system and the immune response. Um, and so wh- why do you think that is, why do you think that kids, do you think it's their uh, innate immune response is just quicker? And, um, I've read some things where the, the stat one gene expression is being, um, sort of turned off or interfered with. So the interferon gamma response, um, that we normally would mount in you know, older patients is not as robust, and so you get a delayed um, antiviral, um, you know, immunologic response. So, what do you, can you just unpack that, or give me your best guess as to why there's a difference in the in children versus adults?
2: Yeah, I, it is just that it's an educated guess, and it's from what other people have kind of uh, pontificated about this as well. Um, It is true that as you age, your immune system becomes kind of more senescent or less capable. Uh, But some of the age issues, particularly those over 60, 70, 80, may not just be the immune response, but just your overall health contributing to the mortality, unfortunately. And I'm not sure, you know, if a patient is 85 and has diabetes and hypertension and heart disease, for example, if they don't have a cytokine storm we may not be able to help them with treating the cytokine storm but if they do we potentially could assist them in some process Um, why kids don't seem to be all that sick with this is really interesting but entirely up in the air Um, and uh, i've heard everything from you know maybe they've had more exposure to coronaviruses that are similar to this virus and maybe that's why they respond to the exact opposite maybe being overexposed in the past makes your immune system less able to tolerate this virus? I, I really don't think anyone knows, but, it, but there are patients in their 30s, 40s, 50s who are not you know, 60, 70, 80, who get very, very ill with this. And uh, we know for influenza, for example, the H1N1 2009 outbreak, when we looked at a very small subset of patients who died from that, who were in the, that kind of the 30, 40, 50 age range, that we saw some genetic signatures uh, that we see in the, the familial form and the one in 50,000 live birth rare familial HLH. And so we don't know with this virus, but with other viruses, we tend to see like a genetic predisposition to that. But I, this doesn't really answer why, why kids are relatively spared from that because they presumably have the same mutations.
1: You yeah, know, one other question is, you know, how do we screen for a cytokine storm? I mean, clearly we're not in the ICU right now. We're not managing it. But for for our colleagues who are, you know, right now on the front lines, yeah, I've heard I've heard serum ferritin levels, um, you know, D-dimer, erythrocyte sedimentation rates are are key factors. How do you recommend people screen for cytokine storm syndrome?
2: Yeah, and I, you know, I, because I have this platform, I will say. You know, people are dying of cytokine storm syndromes every single day around the world in intensive care units, pediatric and adult, from a variety of causes. And if you don't diagnose it, you're certainly not going to treat it. And so um, my personal bias, and this is the extreme, and I understand that, is that if you're sick enough to be in a hospital and you have a fever as part of that sickness, even if you know why you're sick, uh, I think it's worthy of a ferritin screen. Uh, and certainly in COVID 19. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit more about the differences with COVID 19. But if you're sick enough, that sick, with whatever febrile illness you have, uh, a ferritin is usually a pretty cheap test. It depends on the hospital system, but usually 40 or $50. It usually comes back within a day, if not faster, and most everybody can do it. So it is a, re- a great screen for many secondary forms of cytokine storm syndrome. It's not, it's very, Uh, sensitive in a sense. It's not perfectly sensitive, but very sensitive. And the higher the value, the much more specificity you get. But in my opinion, if it's elevated, you have a fever, you're sick enough to be in the hospital, then you can start exploring these other avenues that may help you come to that conclusion that your patient has a cytokine storm. At least it kind of wakes you up to thinking about it. With COVID-19, because it does seem to be slightly different than a lot of the other cytokine storm storms that we see, the values of the ferritin tend to run lower. They're definitely elevated. So, you know, It depends on where your lab cuts off their normal uh, ferritin value, usually less than 200 nanograms per microliter, for example. Uh, In cytokine storm syndromes from other things, whether it's influenza or leukemia or lupus or whatever, we often see the ferritin in the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of range, incredibly high. And for this virus, most of the patients, it can't, I won't say it won't get over 10,000, but it and it can, but it tends to run in the 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, maybe 5,000 range. So it's elevated, but it's not nearly as high as we see in other cytokine storms. And maybe that's because this virus really attacks the lung first, and the ARDS or the respiratory distress syndrome really is is the primary driver of what's making the patient sick before maybe some of the other involvement, like the liver, which is one of the drivers of ferritin going up, gets involved. Um, so I think ferritin is A ferritin is a very good, simple place to start. I think every patient with COVID-19 who's sick enough to be hospitalized deserves that the day they walk in the door. But there are, like I said, a a variety of other um, confirmatory features. Uh, For example, the ones you mentioned, the D-dimer, which is what we see in uh, disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, which is often a feature of cytokine storm syndrome. My colleagues in Italy who are suffering this right now tell us that that's a very good marker, both diagnostically and to kind of follow how they're progressing or improving. Um, Liver enzymes, once again, they tend to be very high in other secondary forms. They're, They're elevated here, but not screaming high, but it can be useful. Even your basic complete blood count. So this virus in particular really the white count can be high. It sometimes is low, but often is high. But the, the lymphopenia is a, is a striking feature of this particular cytokine storm with COVID-19. So the, the lymphocyte count is often very low. And whether that's because they're being sequestered and then long or destroyed, I don't think anyone knows, but it's, it's it's a clear sign that the cytokine storm is is underway. The lactate dehydrogenase or LDH is another really good marker. I could I could go on for a while, but I'll I'll, I'll let you break in.
3: I want to bring in uh, Laura and, and Bill here. Um, you know, first a, a bit of good news from our friend Alice Epitropoulos, who states that her cousin was in the ICU on the cusp of a requiring a vent, was in full cytokine storm, no treatment was working, uh, but then he received uh, Actemra, um, and within hours he had turned the corner. So. Uh, we'll get into some of the antivirals and monoclonals in a
1: bit, but Bill, what are your thoughts on on what on what you're hearing? Is this follow some of the the things you've read? I mean, is this interesting? I, I find this incredibly interesting.
4: Oh my, God, this is amazing! I feel very honored, Dr. Cohen, that you're here sharing with us your knowledge and educating us. Because um, our big fear is, you know, when we go to the hospital, if people go to the ICU, uh, there's a seems to be a pretty high mortality. I know that from what I understand is that typically when a patient is on a ventilator for they can live on a ventilator for years and years. So there's something different here. People are dying even though they're on the ventilator. So it's this other process that you're describing that seems to be uh, really being in, leading to this high mortality. And I know there's different uh, other methods that, that people are trying to do to help. Um, I did have a couple of questions. One was uh, there's, in the recent news, they are talking a little bit more that besides males uh, also experiencing a higher death rate, also African-Americans seem to be having a higher death rate. I was wondering if you could comment on both of those uh, subgroups, if there's something different in their immune system that maybe explain that for, for us.
2: Yeah, I think the male thing is really interesting. Uh, it's not uh, as disparate as what you'd see, for example, with the African-American mortality rate. Um, I don't know if there's a particular immune system defect there. Uh, in general, for example, in autoimmune disease, it's really women for most of those diseases who dominate, uh, unfortunately. But, uh, it, some people have hypothesized that, you know, men in general may not be in as good a health. They may have, you know, maybe overweight or have hypertension or whatever. I, no, I, you know, this is gonna come out in the wash. I don't think anyone really knows now. The African-American issue is probably multifactorial. I mean, I think Dr. Fauci mentioned this the other day that there are health disparities, right? We've had them long before coronavirus, whether it's access to care uh, or mistrust of physicians and versa-visa and, you know, I, I think, and and maybe there are issues, particularly in the South, for example, with obesity and hypertension. Um, I think it's gonna be multifactorial, but I think health disparities uh, is clearly a a part of that, unfortunately.
5: Dr. Corn, one of the questions I had was, I've seen some stuff written about the hematologic consequences of COVID and cytokine storm, and there's um, a lot of talk about ACE inhibitors and how at presentation people are removed from them and how that may downstream accelerate the coagulopathy. Can you comment on that at all? And-
2: In terms of ACE inhibitors, and this is kind of out of my realm of excellence, but, uh, you know, there's some thought that by treating with an ACE inhibitor, and this is mostly conjecture as far as I know, <coughs> that you ramp up the ACE2 receptor on the lower lung uh, cells that are kind of the, the, pathway for the virus to get into the lung cell Um, and so theoretically if that's true and I think this is all just hypothesis that could be bad on the other hand for the most part of my understanding of the World Health Organization recommendations et cetera, is if you're on whatever current therapies you're on you should likely remain on them particularly if they're working for you
1: one, of the, one thing I'd like to get your take on uh, while we've got you on here, uh, Randy, is there, there was a, a paper that came out of a, a medicinal uh, chemistry lab in China. Um, I think the paper, the publisher is ChemRXIV. Um, it's talking about how the um, ORF8 protein or the spike protein on COVID um, binds to porphyrins. Have you seen this paper or have you seen any talk of this?
2: I have not, so I can't speak to that. Okay. All right.
1: We can, we can save that for another time. Uh, Blake and I were kind of, and and Bill and Laura and I were talking about this, you know, there's, I guess this would be sort of a, a good time to talk about the fact that people are throwing a lot of different theories out there right now because the whole world is focused on one problem. This might be the first time in modern history that we all have got to put all of our heads together to try to solve this. And, and that does require something outside the box. It requires you know, all of us to, to sort of be in this together, but it also gives us maybe some weird theories. And, and after this is all said and done, you know some things may stick and some things might We say, oh, that, that was really not so smart. Um, on that topic of, of trying everything we can and just throwing the kitchen sink at this, I really would like to talk about um, hydroxychloroquine um, we know that this is something that um, I guess it's a special bond between ophthalmologists and rheumatologists because we do all the plaquenil <laughs> screening and you and you guys put all the patients on on plaquenil and, and so we sort of feel like we have this back and forth with our plaquenil patients. So um, I, while I have you on here, I'd love to get your take. And again, I know this is kind of a controversial topic right now. It seems like it's being politicized for reasons that I don't really understand, but you know, I would love to hear from you um, to give us your perspective on, on sort of, does this help for prophylaxis? Can it help for treatment? Can it help with cytokine storm with some of its um, you know, immune modulating effects? So I'd love to hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah. So um, my, my understanding of actually the rationale for hydroxychloroquine is that it had antiviral properties. So I'm not sure, you know, it may certainly have... have you know, moderate properties that may or may not benefit cytokine storm syndrome. My gut feeling is that it's not going to be that much of a home run in that aspect. I can't speak to the antiviral properties, but I'd also be just personally surprised if that's going to be what helps everybody. Um, even if it, for example, uh, for people who aren't in the hospital, saves you one less day of being febrile and aches and pains and all that, the trade-off of not having hydroxychloroquine or plaquenil available for our patients who rely on it, for example, lupus patients, uh, because it's in such short supply, I don't know. That's you know whether it's going to help the average person one day or less. To, <laughs> uh, but because a lupus flare, if someone flares because they can't get their plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine, that could be you know a more significant event. So. Um, I'm not an expert on antivirals, but I think that was the original rationale for this. Um, as you guys know, you know, it's pretty rare to see retinopathy. You, know, you have to be on it for a long period of time, um, and we worry about that. So we send you know our patients to you all and, and you screen them. Um, but now because uh, it's being used by a lot more people, clearly you know people are talking about prolonged QT intervals and other arrhythmias, which we personally, I'm a pediatrician. We, I don't think I've ever seen that in any of our longstanding Plaquenil patients. But certainly in adults, that may be an issue. So there are concerns there as well.
3: Laura, Laura, there's been some clinical trials on, on some of this. Uh, we we don't have those robust, randomized, large clinical trials that we like. But you know, I know you've read up on that, and we know that this is you know, there's, there's multi-phasic aspects of this disease. Can you
5: comment on that? Oh, thanks, Blake. Um, so when I was doing research in and uh, gosh, we started talking about this almost a month ago amongst ourselves, like a bunch of med school nerds, right? <laughs> it was so fun. Um, I went into the clinical trials registry and as of three weeks ago, there was 81 different clinical trials registered directed at COVID, which was very exciting. And you read through the drugs and then you start thinking about, well, mechanism of action. And that helped me to form sort of in my, or an organizational construct in my mind about the different phases of the disease. And when you look at the different drugs that are being studied, you can start to see, well, gosh, this is where this makes sense. So in the situation of prophylaxis, it's like, well, is there something we can do to help uh, regulate those really high upstream innate and adaptive immunity processes with, with Plaquenil? is there a role for the antiretrovirals? There's several studies looking at antiretrovirals. Is the, and then there's the wonderful targeted you know, cytokine receptor or antagonist that we have downstream of that. And then we've got things like even VEGF and it took me a while to figure out, well, why would VEGF, anti-VEGF medications, i.e. abastin, be part of the clinical trials. And I think it harkens to the hematologic aspect of the disease multi progression that I still don't understand. And when you're on those um, chat groups on the COVID ICU uh, docs, they talk about uh, this coagulopathy and how in the earlier stage of the disease, you should probably be on baby aspirin and progress to pla- uh, Plavix to progress to Lobinox and then big gun um, anticoagulants later on. But even those can have so it's in my mind, it's very multiphasic and all of these awesome strategies that we're employing can be understood in the context of prevention, early infection, amplification, conversion to adaptive immunity, and then the cytokine storm and then the coagulopathy cascade that happens as a result of all the injury. At least that's how I'm under- understanding it. So there's a lot of great research out there and I'm very excited. and I'm very happy for Dr. Epitropolis' cousin that uh, did well with, um, with the um, tocilizumab, the Actemra.
3: And Bill, I want to bring you in here because, um, you know, we, there's a lot of questions uh, about if you're on the front line treating patients, should, be, should you be on this prophylactically? We're not talking about ourselves, but just, you know, those positions on the front line. But there's also the concern that, that Randy brought up of the supply chain. I know a lot of industry have been mass producing pills and donating pills. Can you kind of speak about the, sort of the, the risk benefit of that? And zinc. Absolutely.
1: And zinc.
4: And I think that's the key thing is because one of the mechanisms of hydroxychloroquine is that it's a zinc ionophore, which means it helps increase the levels of zinc inside the cells to help fight these RNA viruses. So I think it's pretty interesting. There's been a lot of clinical trials and study data that's come out that seems positive towards hydroxychloroquine for the treatment of COVID-19. And while the studies are early, they seem to be suggesting that it can be helpful. And then there's been a number of doctors who've shared their experience using a combination of zinc plus hydroxychloroquine, almost like an outcome study. They've shared their experience treating patients. Now we're waiting, of course, for clinical trials that will be comparative with placebo, but that'll take a few weeks to get data. So for now, we have to use our best judgment when we're treating patients. As well, the question goes, well, why not just have a loading dose on board for, for, for first responders, for example, firemen and and uh, EMS people who are saving people's lives, you know, they're gonna get you know, the virus you know, blown up in their face if they're doing CPR. If this drug is helpful, why not give them at least a small amount to be on board and be ready in case they do get infected? Um, I guess my last comment will be on the supply chain. I do wanna credit my cousin, uh, Zach uh, Cohen, who's, um, very invo- who's been helping provide some of that research, but it seems like a lot of the pharmaceutical companies have really been working hard to really up the production, both in the US and, and outside of the US. Um, India was going to hold some shipments, but now is, thinks, uh, is now going to increase those shipments again. So we should be in good shape there, and hopefully this will be a short-term run. There's a short-term like shortage, but hopefully that'll be uh, improved with more supply.
1: Yeah, Dr. Kron, what are, what are your thoughts on that in terms of prophylaxis um, with zinc? Because to me again I'm we're, we're bringing you on here as the expert you know we're obviously you know want to hear your opinion and not tell you what you know, we think we're here to listen uh, but that being said it does seem like you know we know zinc does have some antiviral um, effects um, on other coronaviruses and cold viruses uh, rhinoviruses etc um, and we know the plaque know, can be a zinc ionophore does that does that make any sense to you at all or is that am I, are we on the wrong track
2: I think there's a lot of things that make sense. And once again, I'm not a virologist, but um, it, to me, you have to weigh the relative importance of things. So there's a lot of stuff that makes sense in a test tube. There's a lot of stuff that makes sense to some degree, you know, whether it's mega dosing people with vitamin C or whatever else has been thrown out there. And that's not to say they're bad ideas. It's just the reality of the situation is this is a bad virus. And I will be personally surprised if something that simple I'm not saying not to do it because no one knows but you know we do have drugs for example that we know can treat cytokine storms for example you're talking about tocilizumab and your um, relative those we know those are pretty you know impressive responses when you see them Um, so whether it's zinc or vitamin C or uh, you know people have floated cannabis you name it whatever people's interests are I will be very surprised if those have substantial impacts, but you know, I'm I'm happy to be surprised if any of those things work. But once again, I'm not a virologist, so I don't I can't speak as well to the, the antiviral therapies as I can to the cytokine storm.
1: Well, well, let's let's dive let's dive back into the cytokine storm. Um, one of the early articles I read uh, because I was sort of Googling cytokine storm and and your name just kept coming up on all these fantastic articles. So I would I would encourage anyone who is interested in cytokine storm syndrome to google randy cron and you'll find out you'll you'll get great articles about it so um but i remember you read or you wrote about a patient you said one of the sickest patients you had ever taken care of got a dose of i think i believe it was an il1 blocker anakinra and it was like almost miraculous the patient turned the corner and, and it saved their life can you talk a little bit about how you have seen patients respond to these kind of treatments and, and what you feel like is, is most promising on the horizon.
2: First, I'd also just like to point out because we have colleagues all over the world and, and several, uh, many in the United States who work on a lot of aspects of cytokine storm. And while I may be getting some attention now because of our textbook, uh, there are a lot of phenomenal people out there who have contributed a lot to this field. I just want to get that out there. But the patient you're talking about, I used to be at the University of Pennsylvania before I, I came to Birmingham. And, um, and my lab uh, was working actually on um, molecular aspects of lupus. Uh, but this one patient that we reported that you're talking about kind of uh, was a, a wake up moment for me. And it has caused me over the last decade and a half to switch my focus uh, more so to cytokine storm syndromes in terms of my research Um, And this was a an unfortunate young girl who um, had a rare disorder, but as part of that rare disorder, she would get cytokine storm syndromes or what we call in rheumatology macrophage activation syndrome syndrome. And I think it's also important to point out to everyone that cytokine storm syndrome. uh, I like to think of it as an umbrella term. Uh, And underneath that umbrella. There are, and it gets confusing because they have all these different names, whether it's macrophage activation syndrome or MAS or the hemophagocytic lymphohistocytosis or HLH or the cytokine release syndrome that we see in leukemia patients or lymphoma patients who get CAR T-cell therapy for refractory disease. And and ARDS, the acute respiratory distress syndrome uh, can certainly occur during some of these cytokine storms, but not all of them. So anyway, uh, this young girl, uh, was in the intensive care unit with her disease, having a cytokine storm. And this was back, I believe in 2004. And uh, for me personally, she was probably the sickest kid, as you mentioned, that I've ever seen um, come out of the ICU essentially unscathed at the end. And her, you know, she, every organ system was failing. She was in ARDS for her long, she had pancytopenia. So all her counts, platelets, white count, red cells were all down. She had liver failure, she had kidney failure, she needed support for her heart, uh, so she is in heart failure. Uh, she had pancreatitis, she had seizures and bad central nervous system, but she was comatose essentially, uh, really on death's door. And um, around this time we had started using this drug, Anakinra, which is a recombinant human protein. So it's made in bacteria, but it's actually just more of a protein that our own body makes to help balance out excess IL-1 which is a very inflammatory protein or cytokine and we had started using this drug in patients with another uncommon disorder called systemic juvenile idiopathic arthritis and for whatever reason those patients uh, have a high propensity of developing cytokine storms or mas or macrophage activation syndrome and and our colleagues had also shown that this was a great drug for that disease and we were starting to use it in that disease as well and we kind of made the leap that, okay, kids with systemic JIA do well with blocking IL-1 and they have a propensity to get macrophage activation syndrome. Maybe we can help this child. Because she was already started on a protocol that the hemato had used for a while now, which was a chemotherapy-based protocol using a topicide for the genetic form of this disease called HLH. But they'd also started using it in secondary forms because they're much more common than the genetic form. And it works, but it's got a lot of morbidity and mortality associated with it. And anyway, she had been started on that, but was still worsening. And so when we saw her, we talked to the team, we talked to the family and said, look, this is a, actually, and there's a lot of safety data for this drug, because it was thought to be a great drug for rheumatoid arthritis, has approval for that. So we have over 7,000 patient years of safety data that's very favorable. It's also a very short half-life of like four to six hours. So even if it was causing problems, it's gone before you know it. And when it works, it works fast. So you know within two or three days if it's working. If not, you can you know rethink and switch switch uh, directions. Nevertheless, we talked to the family and said, look, I don't think we have anything to lose here. We don't think we're going to cause more harm. We may help. And within two days, this girl woke up from her coma. And within six days, she was out of the ICU. Within a couple of weeks, she was out of the hospital. It was nothing short of miraculous for me, really. It was phenomenal. And that was really what flipped my interest in this disease and potentially uh, how we could help people with this.
3: I think those uplifting stories are, are, are what gets us through. I think when I turn on the news and I see, you know, nurses and doctors clapping for those folks who are getting discharged from the ICU coming off fence is so important. Um, You know, Gary, we're just past the halfway point here. I think it's important to to thank our supporters uh, who make podcasts like this and shows like this possible. Um, Our premium sponsors like Allergan and Johnson & Johnson Tier Science, also Aerie and Novartis, Sainteen and Kayla Kayla Pharmaceuticals and Avellino Labs. Uh, We have a lot of teammates within industry that's making this possible. Um, And also, um, you know, outside of thanking them, I want to thank all of our uh, people listening right now. Again, if you have questions, please, at the, at the bottom there, uh, enter them in the Q&A in the chat section. And uh, Laura, I mean, there's, there's, i got all kinds of questions just listening to him talk. Is there anything that's kind of come to mind uh, that, that you'd like to ask?
5: Yes, I have, a, I have lots of burning questions. I hope you'll forgive me. <laughs> um, in my mind, I was, I, I was hoping you can explain to me a little bit better the interferon subtypes and their role. In different forms of disease, because I, I know that there's a, a new gamma interferon molecule that's been studied in the Italian ICU patients, and they're crunching the data now, and hopefully there's a good signal there. But that's gamma interferon, and that can be different than alpha and beta. And I just was hoping you could help me understand a little bit better the subtypes and how those play a role. And maybe they're, and I'm thinking to myself, we're always having trouble getting. Um, interferon for our topical squamous cell carcinoma patients conjunctival and i'm thinking oh i wonder if we could use this down the road in some of the stuff we deal with in ophthalmology and ocular surface disease anyway please
2: sure so there are multiple types of interferons and within each type there are multiple proteins so there's the type 1 interferons like interferon alpha interferon beta i, I actually learned about those from like a newsweek article or something back in high school biology which was i'll age myself in the late 70s but um, and so you, you have the, the concern of needing them or blocking them. And so type 1s are really, you know, th- at the time, back in the late 70s, they, I think Time Magazine thought this was going to be the cure for the cold. Um, turned out it wasn't, but it, they are very important for treating viral illnesses in your body. Type 2, for example, gamma interferon, uh, I'll, I'll come back to. And then there's type 3, the lambda interferons. But, and there's much less known about them. But, the, but gamma interferon, um, uh, people researchers, for example, Michael Jordan, who, not the basketball player, but a, a pediatric oncologist who's in Cincinnati, um, he did this very kind of pivotal study um, in mice, actually, where uh, mice were lacking one of these HLH genes, perforin. Uh, and uh, those mice uh, were perfectly fine in their cages. They were like any other mice in the colony. Uh, despite the fact that they couldn't kill through this perforin pathway, their NK cells and their CD8 T cells. But when they got a certain virus that was introduced, they would die within uh, 10 to 14 days of a cytokine storm. And it turns out that if you remove the CD8 T cells from those mice, that they don't do a great job at clearing the virus, but they survive. Similarly, if you remove the protein gamma interferon that can be produced by them and other cells, they don't cure the virus perfectly, but they survive. So this concept that the virus is triggering this and the virus is bad, but that really it's the immune system that's killing, in this case, the mice, and and likely the same thing in humans, uh, I think was really uh, a pivotal moment uh, in us trying to understand what's going on, at least in, some of these better understood genetic forms of cytokine storm syndrome. So there are, uh, you mentioned this drug emapalumab. It's uh, anything that ends in MAB, monoclonal antibody. So it's a, an antibody that's all the same, but it's directed in this case against this protein interferon gamma or gamma interferon, it's called either way. Um, and it is the only FDA approved drug that I know of for a cytokine storm. And it was approved in the, in the New England Journal article, still not out yet, but I hear from my colleagues it will be soon. Um, and they used it in patients with this rare genetic form that affects about one in 50,000 people, individ- infants primarily. Um, and, uh, and then those patients who were not doing well with their etoposide-based chemotherapy protocols, for example, they tried this drug and it was phenomenal. We've tried it here in a couple patients and it's been phenomenal. That's anecdote. It's not a clinical trial like have been done. And you're right. In Italy, they are doing a clinical trial where one arm of the trial is anti gam interferon and I hope it works there are some reasons to be a little concerned about targeting gamma interferon because it is really important in clearing viral infections but the trade-off is let's say it makes it harder to clear the virus but it treats the cytokine storm and you survive that may be the trade-off and so uh, hopefully like you said within a, a month or so we will know from that trial it won't prove it for everything but it's the first kind of like well-controlled trial that will give us an idea whether that particular agent also in that trial is anakinra the drug i was talking about earlier so uh and actemra or tocilizumab is being trialed in many places there are other il-6 receptor or direct il-6 antibodies that are out there there are a variety of approaches that we've used in treating other cytokine storms that are now being clinically trialed so we can get more definitive uh, hard data to help guide us in how to treat these patients
5: Thank you, that was awesome. I understand it so much better now. I have a question about just that step upstream from the cytokine storm. There is a immunologic handshake between the cells that results in the dump of the cytokines. And then ophthalmology, we have a drug that blocks the release, that double immunologic handshake that that inhibits one of them. It's an ICAM-LFA1 antagonist. Is there a role for potentially potential upstream immunologic handshake blockade approaches to preventing the toxic spill of excess cytokines.
2: Yes, there's a I mean it's a really good thought, and it's never been, to my knowledge, studied formally. There is a, a medicine, Abatacept, which is a protein called CTLA-4 Ig or immunoglobulin, which does. Block blocked the interaction between uh, T cells and what we call these antigen presenting cells or other cells of the immune system. Um, and in a very non-controlled, but in desperate fashion a while back, we had reported that uh, patients with the systemic juvenile arthritis who were developing MAS repeatedly, the anakinra was helping, but it wasn't enough. Uh, they just kept coming into the hospital. So in, in that initial report, and we've done a few patients in that, since then, but we now have other agents available to help us we uh, combined the Anakinro with abatacept and actually improved uh, not only their uh, their hospitalizations rate, which was important, but look, were able to lower their corticosteroid dose. Uh, and uh, not only did it help their cytokine storm, but it helped their arthritis. So yeah, that's a really good thought. Um, and uh, like I said, I don't know of anyone studying that specifically in cytokine storm syndrome, but yeah, that's kind of uh, just a very not too much timely difference, but a little bit upstream of uh, the cytokines that gets spewed out.
4: Yeah. Dr. Crohn, could I jump in and ask a quick question? So let's go back to a, a patient who's COVID-19 positive, but thankfully not in the hospital yet. Is there anything they could be doing to help prevent them from th- at someday developing a cytokine storm? What should they be doing? Because that's the last thing you want to do is end up in the hospital and end up with this. What is there any preventative measures that are available?
2: Yeah, so this is, you know, all anecdote and uh, conjecture, uh, educated guess on my part. Uh, But what I hear from colleagues in places like Italy who are overrun with this, um, you know, one of the approaches that I've heard, uh, and this will be very, 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 very extremely controversial, but uh, in desperate times, you do desperate things. And so, you know, we have all these issues with ventilator shortages and, uh, healthcare uh, workforce shortages, right? So it would be nice not to have all these patients in the intensive care unit. And so some of our colleagues in northern Italy, uh, they're pediatric rheumatologists but they connect with their adult counterparts. Um, patients who are coming in with positive COVID 19 and respiratory distress and fever are getting some screening labs, including the serum ferritin and a C-reactive protein, which is just a non-specific marker of inflammation and kind of a poor man's interleukin-6. It doesn't perfectly correlate, but, um, and and they have very low thresholds. I don't know the exact numbers, but very low thresholds. So if you, number one, have a cytokine a, a storm syndrome as evidenced by some of these labs, you are test positive for COVID-19 and you have respiratory distress, but you're not sick enough to require icu care or intubation at that point they're trying a variety of therapies and what they say and this is all correlation it's not necessarily cause and effect until you do the clinical trial is that they've seen the rate of icu admissions go down now that may just be maybe the virus has peaked in that part of the the, the country and so maybe that's the cause but it is a nice correlation to see that these patients and, and there are patients who are in that state who you may do nothing to who may also just turn around. So it, it doesn't prove that what they're doing is helping, but I think they're probably onto the right thing. Uh, and they're using, like I said, a variety of different approaches there, including anakinra, uh, tocilizumab, and here's the big controversy, uh, corticosteroids at kind of low doses, like 40 to 80 milligrams of, I believe, methylprednisolone or solumedrol.
1: Yeah, that's the, the other question is, is cost and access to some of these uh, monoclonal antibodies and these treatments. Uh, it looked like anakinra is relatively inexpensive. I was sort of trying to do some research. Can you talk about the price and, ac- and access for some of these drugs and whether we should be you know, considering using these for patients in the US earlier and upstream?
2: So with this is an issue for our patients who need these drugs irrespective of COVID-19, right? Okay. So um and you know and i will i will say this i I am a big fan of these medicines um whether it's the anti-tnfs which to me was one of the greatest achievements in medicine in the last couple decades because people with adults and kids with arthritis it's turned their lives around it's made our lives a pleasure as rheumatologists to provide these drugs and see our patients do so well so uh, but they are expensive uh, for a variety of reasons that i don't think we have any time to get into but uh but you know and and different ones cost different things anakinra in the short term is relatively cheap compared to some of these drugs but it's also a drug that's given once a day or multiple times a day depending on how sick you are um but it, it kind of priced out as the same as like a, a tumor necrosis factor or tnf inhibited over a year so you know it's all relative and some of these drugs are incredibly expensive like you know I don't even want to venture, but the, like scary expensive, but they work, you know, for what they work for. Um, so this is this is this is also going to be highly controversial. But my gut feeling is is that some of these drugs, if not many of them, will be saving lives. I'll put it at that. And and hopefully these clinical trials demonstrate that sooner than later. Um, so um, and in the end, the supply chain. I don't know about the cost issue and whether, you know, governments can force drug companies to make these, at, you know, reasonable costs for this crisis or not. I, I have, that's way beyond my pay grade. But the, even just the availability of these may be short supply if it turns out they work. Um, and so that's why ultimately, if they work, then it's a good possibility. Uh, and, I, and I preface this with all, all the knowledge that we have from prior coronavirus outbreaks, whether it was SARS or MERS, or even bad influenza outbreaks, where the WHO is recommended against corticosteroid use. But my guess is is that in a subset of patients, the ones you're kind of describing there, William, who, who come in and have some kind of respiratory stress but are not on death door, and they have features, and this is important, of a cytokine storm, that corticosteroids even may be beneficial. At least that's, it's, it makes sense And it's what anecdotally some of our colleagues seem to be uh, experiencing. And those drugs are pretty widely available and not that expensive. So that's you you can blame this all on me. I think other people think the same thing, but I'm probably maybe the one that's crazy enough to mention it. Uh, But it may be that that's what we ultimately turn to. in addition to these other medicines that hopefully will show promise in these clinical trial results that we get within a month or two.
3: So Bill, Bill put you on the spot with, you know, you're sick, but you're not ICU sick. You know, what do you you take to keep yourself out? What about, you know, one step further when you're in the ICU, when you're on that side of the coin, you know, does it change? Again, I'm just curious what cocktail you'd want, God forbid, if you were in there or a loved one, you know, I know it's anecdotal evidence, but you know, I think that's what people want to know is once you're actually in the ICU and you're about to be ventilated possibly or intubated, you know, d- does your cocktail of choice kind of change in that setting?
2: And I also want to, be, you know, have some degree of responsibility here too. And I, this is not to say what I just said, that if you're at home sick and you're well enough not to be in the hospital, I am not recommending at all to take corticosteroids by any stretch. And I don't think anyone should do that at all. And I'm not even telling people to take them in the scenario that I just announced in severe settings. But people are doing it whether I say it or not, because they're desperate in certain places where this is overrunning their system. But like that girl I was telling you about, uh, I would still try, if there is a evidence of a cytokine storm, to treat it, uh, because it's much less likely to be effective than if you get them before they require ICU care whether it's uh presser support for your cardiovascular system or intubation to support your breathing. Uh, if you have a cytokine storm at any stage uh, that you're sick enough, you should try to treat it. My personal bias and everyone that knows me knows this is uh, I'm much more familiar with anakinra just based on the reasons I said, it's a generally safe drug. For a lot of reasons, it's not perfect. You can have liver enzyme elevations and theoretic uh, low white counts and stuff. Um, but in general, it's remarkably safe. It's a protein your own body makes. It's just giving more of it to balance out excess IL one, and it tends to work. You know, we've had the most experience with it anecdotally. We have a clinical trial ongoing here for other se- that we started before COVID nineteen for other secondary forms. But the, most of these drugs, because the condition has been vastly under recognized, I think. Uh, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg here in cytokine storm syndromes beyond COVID-19. They just haven't been trialed. Uh, and like I said, the FDA-approved drug, uh, that just happens, right? And that's the only FDA-approved drug we have for this condition. But if I was in the intensive care unit or my family member, and this, you know, this is gonna be highly controversial again, but if it was me, and this is what we all, you know, parents ask us all the time as, as pediatricians is this what you would do for your child? And you have to say, if you're recommending it, you have to say yes, and you have to believe it, right? So if it was me, what I know now, and what I've known you know, for 15 plus years of studying this crazy disorder, is that I would want anakinra. Now that may change tomorrow. It may, it turn, may turn out that anakinra does nothing, and tocilizumab is great. I, whatever works, I don't know. But from my experience prior to COVID-19, I would want anakinra. And I would want corticosteroids. Their corticosteroids are going to run the risk of other infections. But if you die from your own immune system, that's the risk you got to take. There are other uh, tons of other side effects associated with corticosteroids, but they are our best friends and our worst enemies. They can turn people around dramatically. We had two kids last month in our intensive care unit here in Birmingham who had uh, the 2009 H1N1 strain of influenza who developed cytokine storms and i was convinced both of those children were not going to make it Uh, they were very ill and one of them completely turned around uh, when we gave high dose corticosteroids so i mean it's anecdote but we see it happening in front of our eyes Um, and so you you asked me if if it was me or my family members that's what i would start with but that's not to say i wouldn't try other things And, and you also have to have you know we rely on our intensivists right they're very good at treating very sick people, right? So you do all the things that, that it's in there, wick of things to do, whether it's supporting you cardiovascularly, or in this case, it seems that, for example, proning, if you have acute respiratory distress syndrome is incredibly valuable for people who are this sick. And so we rely on them as well. So it's, and, and if there turns out to be antivirals that are effective, sure, you gotta use those too. We just don't know yet.
1: Right. Well, this has been one of the most fascinating conversations that I've had. And I, I feel like I have a lot of fascinating conversations with a lot of smart people. And so, uh, uh, Randy, I, I want to thank you so much for shedding some light on a part of this that just didn't make any sense to me is is why are we having su- such a subset of people who are, are just going on to severe disease? And, and obviously, we'll find out a lot more later once we sort of look back and you know, hindsight's 2020, no pun intended. Um, but, you know, thank you so much for coming on. Do you guys, Blake, any other, any other final comments before we start wrapping this up?
3: Yeah, I mean, just some housekeeping stuff. Uh, you know, we, we, this has been such a great episode and we look forward to more episodes next week. We're going to be getting granular on telemedicine. We're going to be talking to some senior ophthalmologists that have been working 30 plus years in the field and wondering how COVID changes uh, their life. But, but I think it was really important for us today to get very granular um, you know, on this disease and possible emerging treatments, both in the prophylactic or sick or ICU stage, it is multiphasic. Uh, so Randy, thank you so much for coming on. And of course, uh, Laura and Bill, uh, you guys uh, obviously have a lot of uh, expertise in molecular biology and we appreciate all your comments. Thank you so much.
1: Yes, we look forward to uh, continuing our coverage of COVID-19 as the story continues to unfold and as we see th- topics that are interesting, uh, let us know. You can follow me on Twitter at CataractMD. Uh, Blake is uh, at Blake Willie. Is that correct? You you. And uh, Bill is at W Trattler. Yes. And Laura, yours is really fancy. Tell us yours.
5: Dry Eye Master.
1: Dry, at Dry <laughs> Eye Master. Randy, are you on Twitter? Can we help uh, promote your following?
2: I am not a social media person. Sorry, I'm a. i am guess I'm aged.
1: That's okay. <laughs> can't do it
2: with That's age, a- but I've just not got into that realm.
1: No worries. Uh,
2: Neither have I, I, Randy. Neither have I.
1: (laughs) Well, just want to thank everybody for attending. And um, we we hope that this ends up helping patients and helping doctors make uh, maybe some new choices that can help patients uh, turn the corner. So with that, be well, and we'll catch you all next time. Thank you.
0: Bryn Communications, industry members, and eye care professionals are coming together to create a forum that connects the vision community in these unprecedented times. This program has been made possible in part with support from our premier sponsors, Allergan, Johnson & Johnson Vision Tier Science, Aerie, Novartis, and Santen. We'd like to thank all of our sponsors for their support of this programming. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications, LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on in this webcast podcast.